Welcome to episode five of The Plan. This series that we're doing throughout the school year is tracing the story of the Bible, the one story that unites all the different parts of the Bible together. And the reason why we're focusing on this is because what we recognize is that the stories you learn in Sunday school, those individual separable stories, uh, you know, David and Goliath is a great story. It's not my story. But it is part of the story of the Bible that is my story, that is your story. Each of us lives in the story of the Bible. And so as Christians, to, to come into... <laughs> uh, as Christians, to come into uh, the faith and to come into the kingdom means joining this story. And also, as we want to... We, not only are we invited into the story, but we also invite others into the story. And so knowing the, knowing the story of the Bible becomes really important, not just in, um, not just in, in our own learning and our own growth, but also in how we invite others into the faith. And so today, we, uh, what we've been looking at is we started in Genesis 1, and we looked at the fact that God is doing one thing throughout the story of the Bible. It's all one plan, because the story is a person doing a thing. And the Bible is the story of God, and God is always working on the same project throughout the whole Bible. And, and we looked at, in Genesis 1, you see this start, and in every story so far in Genesis, it's been working on the same project, and here's what it looks like. The Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in His presence. So what we found in Genesis 1 is that God made the world, and then He made people, and He put them there to rule the world on His behalf. And then on the seventh day, he came and lived in creation to, uh, so that he could fill it with his presence. And that was God's goal. And that is still his goal for creation. Now, in, uh, in Genesis 2 and 3, we saw where God made specifically the Garden of Eden, and he put specifically Adam and Eve there, and he gave them specifically the job of taking care of the garden. And that's where we found the weak point in the plan, which is human beings. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They ruled on their own behalf instead of his and things started to break down. And then we looked at Cain and how Cain, uh, when he refused to wander, instead built a city. We saw this evil civilization grow out of that. And God had to wipe the world clean of that civilization. And they got a fresh start in Noah. And Noah's descendants tried to do the exact same thing. They started repeating those same mistakes. And so we're left with the question of how is this ever going to get fixed? How are we ever going to be able to, how is the plan ever going to get back on track? And that's what we're going to see today, is we're going to see the plan start to get back on track, because the turning point really begins with Abraham. In fact, there are some who will say that the story of the Bible starts in Genesis 12 with Abraham, and everything before that is prologue. There are also people who say that about Exodus, so people have lots of different opinions. But the point is, Genesis 12 is very important, because it introduces Abraham, the one person, or Abraham and Sarah, the couple that he chooses to work through. But I want to I introduce this story by focusing, by starting with something that happens at the end of the story, and perhaps the most challenging part of the story of Abraham. In Genesis 22, it says, uh, God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. This is an incredibly challenging story one of the hardest in the Bible, because right there you've got God telling someone to not only commit human sacrifice, which elsewhere he'll say is a sin, but also to do that with your own child. And this is a very challenging story, but 
is part of a longer story. And what we're going to do is we look at what happened to Abraham through the lens of the plan. We're going to be able to make a little bit more sense of what's happening in Genesis 22 and how that, why God would ask something like this. So we're going to start by introducing the story in Genesis 12. And as I'm reading this passage, I want you to try and use your outline to track the coordinates. The four coordinates that we use on the plan to get our bearings on any story is people, first of all. Who is the story about? Place is where is their home? Presence is where can they meet, or how can they meet with God? And purpose, what did God tell them to do? Because God is always working on these four things. The people, and a place, with his presence, and with a purpose. Right? So, I'm going to read you the opening of Genesis 12 and track these coordinates as we go. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haram. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the side of the great tree of Moreth at Shechem. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. All right, so, who's the story about? Abram and Sarah. Uh, so, in the past, I just read it's Abram and Sarai. Their names get changed later on. Just for simplicity, I'm going to call them Abraham and Sarah the whole time. So, Abraham and Sarah. So, what God has done, this is where the story makes this huge turn, is that out of all the people, God has chosen one couple to be his people. He's now working with a specific group of people. And where is their home? It's Canaan. God has sent them. So, so in... Uh, okay, so... There's two answers. One is Ur. That's where they're from. In this story, God gives them a new home. He gives them a new land. He tells them to go to Canaan. Now, if you remember last week, um, what direction do, geographically in Genesis so far, what direction do people go when they are in rebellion against God? To the east, right? And in Genesis 11, they end up going to the east into Babylon. Well, Ur is called Ur of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans are Babylonians. Right now, we have a story of Abraham being called out of Babylonia and sent west to Canaan, to the Promised Land. So God has chosen a specific couple, and he's going to work in a specific place with them. Now, how can they meet with God? If you remember, in the original design, there's a place on earth where they can meet with God, and then after the flood, that, that presence disappeared. We didn't have a location, a new Garden of Eden. But... God still meets with Abram, right? They have this encounter. But notice that the encounter is on God's terms. God appears to Abraham. There's no sense that Abraham can go to a place and expect to meet God. In fact, he builds the altar after he meets with God because he realizes, oh, I've met with God in this place. He wasn't necessarily expecting it. So, and this is going to be the arrangement for a while until the middle of Exodus that they can meet with God when God meets with them. God will come to people and they'll kind of find out after the fact that God was there, that God came there. But there's no sense that I can go to this location and meet God. God's just going to show up on his terms. All right, so purpose. What did God tell Abraham to do in Genesis 12? 
be able, well, he said, so he says he's going to make him a blessing. In terms of what Abraham actually needs to do, he says, go. Right? Go to the land. God is going to do a lot through Abraham, but the instructions are he needs to go to the land. If he doesn't go, it's not going to happen, right? But this agreement between God and Abraham, which we call a covenant, actually happens. There's three different times that God and Abraham talk and sort things out. And so we get a little bit more detail about what's involved in Genesis 19, or sorry, 15, because there's a problem with this whole nations are going to come out of Abraham. Abraham has no kids. 75, he has no kids. That's a problem. And so in chapter 15, Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord. And he credited to him his righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. So this agreement gives us, and this is a very important passage, in, especially in the New Testament. It gives us another layer to what Abram needs to do. Right? So he needs to go to the land, but notice what he does to be uh, it's credited to him as righteousness is he believes God. He trusts in God. And so the other thing he has to do is he has to trust in this agreement that God has made with him. But what it means to trust in God's promise is something that we, we don't all agree on. And I, I, we, we don't always keep straight. And I think it's important for us to recognize what it means to say that he's going to trust in God's promise. Because on the one hand, we might say, that it just means, you know, really believing, just being confident that good things are going to happen. And just trusting good things are going to happen, and I'll just wait for them to happen. But this is not a waiting kind of trust. See, there, there, are, there actually is action involved in trusting in God's promise. Because God says, go to the land, I'm going to give you the land, you're going to inherit it, and you're going to have children there. Specifically, legitimate children with your wife, right? Now, Abraham can't just do whatever he wants while he waits for that to happen. There are some things that he has to do to live in that promise, to actually trust in that promise. Number one is he needs to stay in the land, right? God's giving him the land. He needs to go there. He needs to be there. If he runs off to, you know, back, back to Babylon, he's interfering with the covenant, right? So that's one thing. He actually has to be in the land. And number two, I wasn't quite sure how to phrase this succinctly, but basically if the goal is to have family, children that can inherit the promise God gave you, you got to make sure that you and your wife don't have kids with anybody else. Seems like a simple thing, but that's part of it, right? Like if you break up the family, like if, if Abraham and Sarah got divorced and went their separate ways, then that would not be trusting in the promise and it would interfere with the promise, right? In, in modern terms, that might be one way we could see them jeopardizing the promise. But, so Abraham and Sarah have to stay together and they have to maintain the, the opportunity for the promise to be fulfilled because it's supposed to be fulfilled through the two of them. Right? So what Abram needs to do is he needs to go to the land, which he did, and while he's in the land, he needs to trust in God's promises, and that means behaving in ways that are consistent with those promises. He can't just do anything he wants while he waits for good things to happen. He has to actually act out that trust that this is what's going to happen. Okay? 
Now, Abraham has a reputation as a great person of faith. So I'm sure that as we go in, and now that we've got our bearings, as we look at Abraham did, he's just going to nail it every time. He's going to do great every time he is put to the test, right? Right? So let's see, what's the first thing Abraham does when he go, after he go, moves to Canaan? Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Where is he supposed to be? We just made a huge deal about him going to Canaan, right? And there's a famine, and the first thing he does is the first sign of famine, he and Sarah, they left the promised land for Egypt. One job. You go to the land that you're going to inherit, and as soon as there's a famine, you leave. Which is not where he's supposed to be. And there's actually, when you watch how the story unfolds, there's a whole bunch of consequences that come from this decision that show us this was not where he was supposed to go. If he had trusted in God and stayed in the promised land, he would have avoided several problems, pretty severe ones. Because okay? that's the first thing he does. They, they, as soon as there's a famine, they leave the promised land. And then, you know what he does while he's in Egypt? This is, this is a horrible story. As they were about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is, my, uh, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman, and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. Okay, so, Abraham is headed to Egypt, and he realizes his wife is beautiful, and he's afraid of getting murdered because of her. Now, does Abraham have a reason to think that God's not going to let him get murdered so someone can steal his wife? Like, you know, a covenant that he has with the creator of the universe that says, I'm going to create a family through you? Right? He has more reason than any of us to think God's not going to let me just get murdered in Egypt. And yet, he's, he's afraid, and so he lies. And make no mistake about the consequences of this lie. Pharaoh thinks that Sarah is, is unaffiliated, and so he takes her into his palace. He's bringing her into his harem. He's, going, he's planning to make her his wife. Now, first and foremost, that is a horrifying thing to do to your wife. It is absolutely horrifying. Horrifying. It is a betrayal. I mean, if you think about that, what that would really, that experience would really be like, it is absolutely horrible. Okay? First of all, on the next level, the story is about, the whole point of this story is about the passing on of the promise to the next generation, right? And so, if God is going to give Abraham and Sarah children, Abraham and Sarah have to be married to each other, right? They have, yeah, and, and, Sarah has just essentially been, she's in danger of being married off to Pharaoh. So not only has he done something horrible to his wife, but as you're reading this, you're supposed to recognize that the covenant is in jeopardy. He has jeopardized the covenant to protect himself from, from danger. You see that? It's, this is not just, some, not just some weird cockamamie scheme to protect himself. He's literally risking the covenant to protect himself. Now, God intervenes because God has said, well, Abraham's my guy, so I'm going to protect him. So he intervenes and he sends plagues to Egypt to make sure that, that nothing happens so that he can rescue Abraham and Sarah out of this mess. But, but he, you can see that he's done And Abraham doesn't learn very well. Because you know what happens in uh, Genesis 20? 
he does the exact same thing again. Now, Abraham moved on from there to the region of uh, the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while, he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. This is still before his son is born. He's still exact same thing, right? At the drop of a hat, Abraham is willing to jeopardize the covenant. Okay? Now, as we're looking at ripple effects of that first decision to go down to here. So, so the second thing Abraham did was he gave Sarah to another man twice. Twice. Both times we're supposed to be watching this thinking, this is going to ruin the covenant. And he's risking the covenant. Now, as we look at ripple effects, he went to Egypt, uh, he, he left the promised land to avoid a famine, went to Egypt. While he's in Egypt, he lies, jeopardizes the covenant. But God stands up for Abraham, protects him. Abraham comes out, and the Pharaoh gives him a whole bunch of stuff to take with him just to make sure that, that, Abraham, that Pharaoh and Abraham's God are cool. He sends him with a whole bunch of stuff. Among them are slaves, among whom is a slave named Hagar. And this presents a whole new issue that happens in Genesis 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had, given, had lived in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. One of the interesting things about that story is it uses the same kind of language in Hebrew as the story of Eve taking the fruit. When you look at, um, uh, and you have to keep reading to see all the connections, but one of the most obvious connections is the wife took something and gave it to her husband. It's like repeating that exact same formula to clue us in that something very wrong is happening here. So what happens is now they both lost faith in the covenant. They both, so they decide to come up with a workaround. And in their ancient culture, this would have been legal. We actually have found marriage contracts where a wife is entitled to um, bring in servants that can have children for her if she can't, so that the husband won't divorce. It's, it's a weird thing, but it was normal back then. But it's not what God promised. God promised that Abraham and Sarah would have the child together. But instead, they had a substitute son through another woman. And you know, there's not a great track record. In fact, I, I would say that leading into Genesis 22, when God tests Abram, he has a 0% success rate of actually trusting in the covenant when, when it's in jeopardy, or when, when he's in danger. Which is interesting, because the whole thing is it says that he trusted, he believed in God, and it was credited to his righteousness. And this creates a crisis in the story. Especially when we see how God responds to all this failure on Abraham's part. We remember how God responded when, jo- when Cain failed to trust God. And, wh- and so how's God going to respond with Abram? It's going to be pretty big, right? It's going to be really set and straight. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abram gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abram circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. In terms of uh, setting Abraham straight, that that wasn't a good way to do it, right? To give him exactly the terms of the covenant when Abraham has been failing every time on his end, that wasn't a good way to set Abraham straight, right? Um, and it creates this crisis. 
because Abraham has been an utter failure on his side. And yet God still gives him Isaac. And he gave him the promise because Abraham believed, because he had faith. But in what way has he had faith? That's the challenge that is brought up by this fact that God gave him the son in spite of their failures. Like, Abraham has human wreckage littered behind him. Just a trail of human wreckage. And he, why does he get the son? Why does he get the promise? Why is God, um, and God why, especially when he, it says he has faith, but he never actually shows it? That's the crisis that we're in when we come to Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Okay, so first of all, the passage tells us from the very beginning he tested him so that we know God never intended for Isaac to actually get killed. But it's important for us to have the right image in mind when we talk about testing. Because when I think about testing, I think of a couple of kinds of tests. I might think of a school test or a scientific test. In a school test, it is an uh, arbitrary uh, scenario that reveals how much you've learned. Right? So a test, tests at school are completely contrived. What I mean is that uh, a math test does not correspond to any way I use math in real life. I'm never going to sit down and have to do a math test in order to balance my checkbook or something like that, right? But it is a math test is something that shows what I've learned that I will then apply to completely different situations, right? So, so tests, we think they're, they're kind of, there's, there's something artificial that we make just to see whether you learn things. And that seems weird for God to do, to come up with a contrived circumstance just, just to test us, something that would never happen otherwise, just to find out what we'll do. The other context is scientific tests where we're like, hey, let's throw these things together and see what happens. Let me mix this chemical and this chemical and we'll find out what's going to happen. And in that sense, it's kind of like, it seems like God is just like, like a kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass, right? Just playing games with people. But that's not the context for what testing means in the Old Testament. They didn't have either of those kinds of tests. What they did do was they tested metal. The thing about testing metal is you apply heat to metal, you, apply, you, know, you, you work with metal, and the seeding and the, and the testing reveals what's inside the metal. You don't know exactly how that metal is mixed. You just took it out of the ground, so you test metal, and it reveals what's inside. And it actually, the testing process actually changes the metal. It brings, you can, when you test it, it brings things up to the surface that you might want to get rid of. Like it actually changes the metal when you do it. So it's not contrived. It's actually a necessary process to um, purifying the metal and to revealing what's inside the metal. That's what's happening here. That's what it means to test, is that Abraham uh, is being tested like metal to reveal what's really inside him, and it's actually going to change him. Because right now, if he has faith, it is completely internal. It has not come out in any of the stories that we've really seen, except for the fact that he relocated his family. But since then, he's failed most of his challenges, so we don't see the faith that's in him. So what God did here is God tested Abraham to reveal the faith that he hadn't been showing. Because God made the covenant with Abraham by terms of his faith. And what we're going to find as we go into the New Testament is that covenant will set the norm for the covenants throughout into the New Covenant. 
Paul is going to point back to this arrangement to help us understand what it means to have faith in Jesus. So it needs to be clear what's happening through Abraham. It's one of the reasons why uh, one of my, my favorite books is called Fear and Trembling, which is a super exciting title, um, by Soren Kierkegaard. And he talks about how people can be afraid, like teachers can be afraid of this story because they're afraid that their congregants might start coming up with, like, hey, God might tell me to murder my kids. God might tell me to do all these kind of things. And if God tells you to do something that crazy, you have to remember, this is not just some regular guy. This is the guy carrying the promises of God. So God doesn't go around saying these kinds of things to just anybody. This, if you have a legitimate one-on-one covenant with God, then maybe we'll have that conversation about whether God's calling you to do something crazy like this. But Abraham is, is this the beginning of something new that God is doing. And so he tests him to reveal the faith that Abraham has. And, and to give him one more chance to show that he really does believe, that he really does trust. And finally, Abraham comes through. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son from me. Who withheld from me your son, your only son? Let's pause here. Why does God say, now I know? Did he not know before? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, now I know because now it actually happened. Now he actually has done something to reveal that. Because if, if Abraham hadn't actually done this, there would have been no place where Abraham's faith really became reality. We can have a lot, of, a lot of feelings inside us that we never actually act on. The real ones are the ones that guide our actions. And so God now knows because Abraham has actually acted on his faith. There is something to actually know in his actions. Abram looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abram called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The two key things happen here at the resolution of the story. The first one is that God stopped Abraham in time to preserve his promise. He stops Abraham, and he provides another an animal to be sacrificed instead so that Isaac can live and Isaac can carry on the promise. So even though it seemed like the promise was going to die on that altar, God made sure that it was preserved. And that was his plan all along. Okay? That's the first important thing that happens there. Now the second thing that I want you to, to tuck away for a second in that passage is how um, God seems to speak at the end there as if it is now because of what Abraham has done on the mountain that, he, that God will keep the covenant. Right? He says, now because of this, I will, I will keep the promise about your descendants. You see what he said there at the end? That's going to help us as we, make, as, we, as we make sense of this. So that's the story of what's called the binding of Isaac. That God calls him to sacrifice his son, and Abraham is willing to, and God stops him and provides a different sacrifice. Now here's the, what may be a little horrifying is to realize we 
serve the same God. We are part of the same story. And so what do we learn from this story of this God who would, who would ask this, and this, this, uh, this God who had this kind of relationship with Abraham? I think there's some really important takeaways for us to have from this story. First of all, having faith in God means acting on his promises, not just waiting for them. See, this is why it's important to note that God, after this story, reaffirms the covenant. That his covenant relationship with Abraham was in some way at stake here. It was never in question because God knew what was going to happen. But it was somehow at stake that Abraham actually going through with this was part of, what, of, of that faith. Because faith is not just believing good. Lots of people can believe that, that whatever God is out there will do good things for them. That actually seems to be our national religion. It's just, just generally believing good things will come to me. Right? And not really having a promise to settle on. But what we find in Scripture is that faith means actually living out, living as if those promises are going to come true. Committing to those promises. And this is exactly what James tells us about this story in his letter in the New Testament. James writes, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. To me, the most interesting part of this passage is the very first clause of this slide. And the scripture was fulfilled. If he's, he's saying that at the mountain, when Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, he was fulfilling the verse from, Acts 5, or from uh, Genesis 15. What that says is that in some way, the verse in Genesis 15 that said Abraham believed God and it was credited of his righteousness, in some way, that was a prophecy. Because it was fulfilled. It was not simply a past tense description of the fact that Abraham agreed with certain statements of fact or had warm feelings about how God was going to treat him. To, when it said he believed in his credit and his righteousness, that was an observation of, of Abraham's existence and, and it looked forward to what Abraham was going to do. That's why, Abraham said, or why James says that statement in Acts 15 was fulfilled by what happened on the mountain. And which seems to say then that if what happened on the mountain had gone some other way, then it wouldn't have been true that Abraham believed and was credited in his righteousness. So that acting out our faith is a key part of what it means to have, an essential part of what it means to have faith in God. Now, what I, that can be a little bit scary because then we start to ask ourselves, well, have I done enough, acted enough on my faith to be saved? And where's that line where I've done enough? And, and here's the other thing to remember about the story of Abraham is Abraham had a terrible track record, right? So you don't have to be perfect. It's not, it doesn't mean you have to do, have such and such a success rate. Or, or What we actually see, Abraham had a very bad success rate, but he made the choice. And in that one opportunity, he came through on it, and God honored that. So what I'm not telling you that you have to somehow switch over to some action-based thing where you have to do enough good things or, or act enough on faith in order to be good and to get in. Because Abraham would not succeed by that basis. 
But what I'm saying is that on some, we do have to actually make the choice, I am going to follow God. I'm going to trust that I am supposed to be what He says I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to do what He says I'm supposed to do. And I'm going to, I'm going to act on that, and I'm going to take on the risk. You know, I'm, I'm going to step out in faith, even when it's hard. We make that choice, and we are going to stumble. We're human beings. That happens. But that's what God calls us to do. And the most encouraging thing that we find from the story is that when we choose to trust God, He provides what we need to see it through. He provides on the mountain of the Lord, He provides. God, that means that, that lamb, God brought up to the mountain before Abram got there. You know, like God was already, God was already orchestrating that the whole time. God had what Abraham needed. And when we commit to God, what we know is that He will provide what we need to see through our mission. To see through what He's calling us to do. God does not abandon us to the mission He's called us to. He provides for us. Now, as, as long as we're in the Old Testament, I'm going to continue to give you spoilers because you don't want you to have to wait until the spring to hear about Jesus. So here's, here's where I want to connect to Jesus because Paul is tracking with all of this in Galatians 3. And he, he makes a bunch of references to this story and to, to how we are... He's, he's in this debate with Jews about who are the legitimate sons of Abraham, uh, the children of Abraham, who are his real descendants. Because the Judaizers are saying you have to be, follow the law in order to be a legitimate descendant of Abraham and to participate in God's promise to Abraham. And Paul has a different perspective. Paul argues that, he, he puts, puts together this argument pointing out that Abraham did not get in because he kept the law. It doesn't say Abraham kept the law and it was credited to him as righteousness. It said Abraham believed. He had faith in God's promise. And that promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the modern equivalent for us of being like Abraham and entering into that covenant that Abraham has is having faith in Jesus. And so he says, in Christ Jesus, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 to bless the world through him, that promise is what we are a part of. As you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you inherit that promise because that's how Abraham came into that promise. He's not using Abraham as a metaphor or an example here. He is literally saying the children of Abraham, the inheritors of that promise, are those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So as you trust in Jesus and you step out in following Him, you are inheriting that blessing and that mission to be a blessing to the world. So through faith in Jesus, we can inherit the same blessing as Abraham. That's why I say, this is our story. Your calling as a Christian reaches back to that moment. It reaches farther back in a lot of ways, but it especially reaches back to that moment when God gave a mission to Abraham. It says, through you I will bless all the nations of the world, and you will be a blessing. We are the nations. And we are called to be a blessing. As we close, I'm going to invite you to consider taking some next steps. 
One next step you might be facing is to give your life to Jesus. If you want to be a part of this mission that God has called us to, if you want to be part of the children of Abraham, today is the best day to put your faith in Jesus Christ. So we encourage you to come forward during the song as we're singing at the end, uh, or if you want to talk to a minister after church, we'd love to talk with you if you're online. Please get a hold of us, talk to a Christian that you trust. We really want to walk through that decision with you. You also may be looking for a church home, and on the first Sunday of each month, we have a Connect class that goes from 1230 to 2, and we just talk to you about who the church is, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. And if you want to sign up for that, you can check the box on your Connect card. The next one is the first, first Sunday in November. Um, you can also join a small group. Small groups are how we live and work together. We grow together. We support each other. We, we dig deeper into the sermon. We share prayer requests. We, just, we go through this as a family because we are the family of Abraham. So if you would like to join a small group, we encourage you to check that box uh, on the connection card. And finally, another step that you can take uh, is to, to take on the mission of God by serving others. And our church provides many opportunities to serve. God also provides many other opportunities to serve, but here you could, first of all, you could help out with the um, trunk or treat, but you can also join one of our service teams and get plugged into serving others. So I invite you to consider making one of those decisions as we stand and sing our final song. Please join us. Mm-hmm.